Good to have a seat, church. Uh, if you're joining us online, we welcome you. And if this is your first time here at NBC, we welcome you as well. Uh, today we kick off a new series on the book of Ruth. And uh, go ahead and get your Bibles open and Bible apps open, and uh, we'll, we'll get going. I'm just going to say right up front, I love this story. Like, I love this story. Uh, Ruth is one of the most heartwarming uh, stories in all the Bible. And it's heartwarming because you get to see God act on behalf of people uh, who are at the, the end. They've got nothing left. Uh, they've, gotten, they've got no money. They've got no property. They've got no, in this particular case, no husbands, which was a big deal back then. A uh, very big deal. It meant that you had no money and no property and no rights and a whole bunch of other things. Uh, and yet, even though there's not a lot of what you would call supernatural stuff that goes on in the book of Ruth, it's actually what gives the story its power. There, you don't see the Red Sea part. You don't see burning bushes. You don't see uh, those kinds of things in the story of Ruth. What you see is God intervening uh, gently in the lives of everyday people and showing his presence by providing for them. And so today, as we kick off, uh, we're going to do some storytelling uh, and just kind of tell you the beginning of the story of Ruth and pull out a couple of, uh, of life applications for you as you go. But um, I hope you enjoy this series. It's, it's something that uh, the church historically has taught Ruth around this time of year because of uh, the, all the harvest imagery that's uh, kind of blanketed, blankets the entire book, I think. But also it's timely because it's holiday season. And so even though right now, like I know we don't often think about Thanksgiving and Christmas as much until Halloween is over, uh, but that's what, 48 hours away? So uh, once you do, then people, I noticed when I was a campus minister, it would happen in students, and I've seen the same thing happen with adults now in, in congregational ministry, is that you can start to see the storm clouds gather over people's heads emotionally, and it may be that they feel anxious about being able to like be the hostess with the mostess. It might be that, hey, I got to go see my family that I can't stand or who has really hurt me over the years, or I've got to argue with my ex about the kids and where they're going to go. There's all these different things that bring a heaviness to the holiday season, and my hope is that what you'll see in this, um, in this story is God intervening in very uh, gentle ways in the lives of very humble servants and comforting those who are grieving and who are at the end of their rope. So with that in mind, let's begin. Once upon a time, there was a man by the name of Elimelech. God is my king, is what his name means. He and his family lived during this spiritually bankrupt time in Israel, known as the time of the judges. So it was a time that the Bible says was a time when everybody did what was good and right in their own eyes, which is not a good moniker in the Bible. You're supposed to be doing what's good and right in the eyes of the Lord. But it's that period from the death of Joshua to the beginning of, or when Saul is anointed king as the first king of Israel. Right in there, you've got Samson and Gideon and Deborah and other characters that come along where you see little flashes of righteousness, but in general, it's viewed as a kind of a bankrupt 200 years or so, where people are just out kind of doing whatever they want to. And Elimelech is really no exception. Elimelech and his family are um, in Bethlehem at the time. Bethlehem means house of bread, and there's no bread in the house is the problem. There's a famine. You learn later in the book, it's not said explicitly, but it's strongly insinuated that God is the one who brings famine to Israel as a way of disciplining them for unrighteousness. And so Elimelech takes, he's got his wife Naomi and his sons, Milan and Kilion, and their wives, Orpah and Ruth, and they decide they're going to take off and go to uh, Moab. 
Moab is a place that no good Israelite is really supposed to go. Moab was a place 50 miles away, maybe from here to San Clemente or so, that um, uh, they, they go because there's no famine in Moab. But Moab was a place where they were the people that came out as a result of Lot. You may remember him from the Abraham story. Lot had an incestuous relationship with his daughters, and they had children. And the Moabites were the result of that sinful relationship. So those are the Moabites. You're not really supposed to go hang out there. You're not supposed to marry Moabite women. You're not supposed to do any of those things, but they end up over there in Moab. And uh, the, part of the reason, again, it wasn't so much a, it wasn't really a racial thing. It was a, a religious thing. They worshiped the god Kamosh. They didn't worship the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so they were not supposed to intermarry for fear of idolatry and worshiping of other gods to, to, to come in. Elimelech, while he gets there, his pressure to, to put food on the table, ends up in Moab, and it doesn't go as planned. Elimelech dies fairly soon after they get there. So that leaves Naomi, his wife, a widow. But at the time, she still got her two sons and their wives. Two sons are named Malan and Kilion. Those names in Hebrew mean sick and dying. So that's what we call foreshadowing in the Bible. And so if your name is sick uh, and dying, there's a good chance you're going to get sick and die. And that's what happens. About 10 years after Elimelech dies, Milan and Kilion go, uh, go on to glory. And uh, left behind then are their wives, Orpah, which means fawn or deer in Hebrew, and Ruth, which means compassionate friend. So all the guys have exited stage right, or, or stage under, I guess, and the women are left. You have Naomi, the matriarch of the family, and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. So Naomi now has a ton of tragedy that's befallen her over about 10 years period of time. She's had to bury her only two sons before they had any grandkids, apparently, and she has to bury her husband, and now she's there in Moab, with no support whatsoever. And I want to emphasize this without getting into too much detail because we'll, we'll visit it in greater length in the story next week particularly. But, but being a woman with no male by your side was not a good thing in the ancient world. Uh, and especially if you were going to be in a place like Moab. And that becomes clear later on when uh, Boaz kind of enters the picture and he has to give instructions to all of his workers not to do certain things to the women of the time. Uh, it was prolific and it was dangerous. Uh, you were almost... Certainly, it'll be, uh, you were going to be stuck in poverty the rest of your life, abject poverty. It was unsafe. You had wild animals everywhere running around. You had uh, bandits and stuff. I mean, this was frontier life before the, there was a frontier. It was just the wild, wild west on steroids, except everybody was spread out, and you didn't really know uh, who was going to do what at any given point in time. And so you have this widow and her two daughters-in-law, and now they're left with very little to nothing. Remember, there's famine back where they left. They left all their stuff behind, and now they're in a foreign land with nothing. So Naomi looks at her two daughters-in-law, and she says, hey, listen, you guys are still fairly young. Why don't you guys stay here, find yourself new husbands, and I'm going to go back to Bethlehem and just die. Okay? So... You guys have a good life. Uh, you know, go do what you're supposed to and, and help yourselves and your, your future uh, kinfolk live on. I'm, I'm old. 
uh, I'm too old to marry, I'm going to go off and just, and just die. All right, so Orpah, uh, who's one of the daughters-in-law, basically says, okay. And she decides that she's going to stay put. And Naomi, hey, you know, don't forget to write. See ya. But Ruth refuses to leave Naomi's side. The text we're going to read, chapter 1, verses 10 to 17, picks up right after the first round of, hey, why don't you guys stay put, and uh, I'm going to go off and just perish, okay? And so we'll pick up the story here, Ruth chapter 1, verses 10 to 17. No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible, and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you. Now get this. Because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. What language? And again they wept together, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look. Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. So off they go. And the rest of the book of Ruth is really about how Naomi and Ruth, to one another, they experience the power and the presence of God through the faithfulness of one another. It's a book that has a lot to do with friendship and how friendship and family carries with it the palpable sense of that God is with you. So... Um, I guess it asks questions about how we do relationship in the world in which we live. Do, do we do it in, in such a way that um, we join the surrounding culture around us trying to kind of get the benefits of relationship without putting anything into it? Uh, do we think that we can text our way to deep friendships like the ones we're going to see? How do we plan to access these things and to be able to offer this gift, this beautiful gift, of real friendship, I mean the kind that sticks with you like Ruth sticks with Naomi, to, to, add, to offer this to other people, if we're too hurried or we don't take the time to engage in things that provide you, I'll call them cave friends. We'll talk about what those are in here in a second. If you're a guilt-wracked son or daughter at this time of year and you really can't stand your family, here's an idea. Uh, you can do a 3D printout of yourself and ship it to your family. Uh, we have a picture of this here. Um, this is a real thing, and, and, and it costs you $30,000, so I'd think it over before you do it. $30,000. And uh, this started as a Mother's Day gift. Guys doing this for their mamas. Are you kidding me? Like, like whose mother is going to be okay with that? Have you ever met a mother that would be okay with that? I, not me, nor would I ever even think for a second about sending that to Sheila Spivey. 
That would be, that would be the end of me. Uh, I would be Milan and Kilian. I'm telling you, that is, a, that is a perfect little prototype of the way that we try to do things, right? I know, I'll, I'll, I'll send them a happy birthday text, or I'll, uh, I'll, I'll jump on their Facebook feed and say, hey, uh, hey, great job, or, or uh, you know, a melting face emoji, or whatever, whatever you want to do to express yourself in a very quick way. And I understand that, that those things happen. I do it myself. I love it, actually. It's a really nice way to stay in touch with a lot of different people. But what you don't get, then, you don't know. If I really hit the skids, if my entire life fell apart, who is really going to be there when nobody wants to be there? When it would cost them something to stand by my side, when, when it's not cool to be my friend right now, when I can't offer them anything, who, who, who would be by my side? Who, who would put their hand in the air and say, yeah, I, I'm, I'm with that guy or that gal? Who, who would be the one that would reach out to you when you really, really messed your life up and say, you know what? Right now, I'm sticking with you. It doesn't mean I endorse everything you do in your personal life, but it means I'm not going to leave you. See, Ruth is about how God's presence is felt and it's made uh, incarnate through people, through family and friends and people who are willing to find you in the cave, if you will. And we'll talk about this in a second. Because there is no substitute for presence. You can't print it. You can't substitute for it. You can't just write a letter. It's, it's there or it's not. We experience and we extend God's presence to people through the faithfulness of our relationships to them. So we miss out on the benefits of receiving or extending faithfulness when we don't invest in relationships with people. One of the beautiful things about church, beyond just all the, all the stuff that goes with praising God together and, and being on mission together and doing those kinds of things, is the fact that, that these, this is a place where you have people that say, okay, we are committed to one another to such an extent that we see ourselves as a body and, and the eye doesn't say to the finger or the toe or whatever, I don't have any need of you. But if one part hurts, the whole body hurts with it. That there are, you're, you're not just kind of off on your own, you're not just part of a clique or a club, you're part of a body, totally different. And part of the reason that God calls us together that way is because we're not built to be solo. We're not built to be by ourselves. Go back to the Garden of Eden. God says of man being alone, it is not good that man should be alone. It's the only thing he says isn't good that he creates. Man is solo. And he says, that is not good. And so when we don't have those relationships, and, and, and it's, a, it's kind of not a thing where uh, it's incumbent upon everybody else to provide that to me. Really, the spotlight needs to go first on what we're offering to the community of faith and to one another. But if you take yourself out of that or you don't invest in it, then not only do you not receive that from people, which is one of the greatest, most beautiful gifts God can give to a person, but you rob other people of being able to receive what you have to offer. Loneliness is an absolute epidemic in the world we're living in. In 2021, it got so bad in Japan, they actually 
appointed a minister of loneliness during COVID. 2021, cabinet position. Imagine that. A minister of loneliness. His name, Tetsushi Yamamoto. And he went around with the sole charge to try to cut down the social isolation factor because their suicide rate was exploding. They saw a big enough need, they said, we're going to devote a cabinet position to this. Dallas Willard brings it down to an earthy level. He lost his mom, theologian Dallas Willard did, he's, he's passed now, but he had lost his mom as a young child and he wrote of a little boy whose mom had died and he was especially sad and lonely at night and he would go to his father's room and ask if he could sleep in his dad's bed. And even then, he couldn't sleep until he knew not only that he was with his father, but that his father's face was facing him, that his father's face was, he was face to face with his dad. Little boy would say, Father, is your face turned toward me now? Yes, his father would say, you're not alone. I'm with you. My face is turned toward you. And then, only then, could the little boy sleep. Willard goes on and he says, how lonely life is. Oh, we can get by in life with a God who does not speak. Many at least think they do so. But it is not much of a life. And it is certainly not the life God intends for us or the abundance of life Jesus came to make available. It's not just the companionship that loyalty and friendship and things like that offer. It's a human expression of God's love. Ruth becomes for Naomi the human expression of the love of God in a time where neither of them has anything left. And so while Naomi is saying, oh, hey, you know what? God has raised his fist toward me. That's how she sees the world. Ruth is the argument against it. God has provided her into the life of Naomi to be a tangible piece of his presence. The biblical prototype for friendship outside the book of Ruth would be David and Jonathan. King David, one King David yet, but Jonathan, who's the son of the king at the time. Saul is the king. He's trying to kill David because he's paranoid that David's going to take over his throne. So he's chasing David from cave to cave, town to town. David is on the run. While he's there, I think in one really uh, powerful scene, in 1 Samuel 23, Jonathan, Saul's son, at great risk to himself, goes to David, finds him in a cave. Now, keep in mind, this is not like a, uh, the times are different here. It's not like he could just geotrack him to that location. It's not like David could say, hey, you know, I'm over here, third cave from the left or something like that. My guess is Jonathan had to go cave to cave to cave to cave to find him. But eventually he does. And it says in 1 Samuel 23, 16, and Jonathan Saul's son rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. He finds him in the cave. When he's on the run, there's nobody to help him. Jonathan goes and he finds him. He doesn't just sit in the palace and go, boy, you know, I really hope David's okay. Really hope he does well. In fact, I'm just going to sit here and I'll just pray for him, though I'm sure he did. He felt some burden to go to David in person and to say, you're not by yourself, David, and to strengthen his hand in God. So he didn't just go there and say, hey, let's play poker together. I mean, he's there for a particular purpose. He wants to make him stronger in the Lord. And that's what godly friends do. They, they're supposed to help strengthen your hand in the Lord. 
So the question I guess I would have is, do you have cave friends? If you want to later today, go read Psalm 142. They're not sure he wrote it from this particular cave, but it was a cave. David is there, and his question is, basically, nobody cares if I live or die. It's almost verbatim what he says. Nobody cares. I'm completely by myself. I have no friends. I got only enemies. God, where are you? And where is anybody else that cares whether I live or die? That's Psalm 142. And it says, a mosquito of David from the cave. And then here comes Jonathan, almost like in the Hunger Games where the medicine flies in on some little thing. Here comes Jonathan in to strengthen his hand in the Lord. Cave friends. People that, that know I bet, I bet she has got to be toward the end of the old rope right now. Has to be. I know that if I were him, I would probably feel like nobody in the world wanted to be seen with me. But they come and they find you in the cave. That's what Ruth does for Naomi. Orpah, Orpah doesn't. Orpah Decides, her name means fawn, the little deer is going to skip away. But Ruth, compassionate friend in Hebrew, stands by her side and becomes this tangible human power and presence of God in the life of Naomi. And Naomi becomes that for Ruth as the story develops. I have cave friends, cave friends. I had, I had one when we were very early in starting the church. In fact, we We'd only been launched about a week. It was, it was, I remember Monday morning after Easter, he calls me. I'm in my pajamas. I walk out the back door of our house to sit in the backyard. Uh, it's 10 o'clock in the morning or so. And this guy's a, a pastor and had probably preached 8,000 services the day before. And he calls me and he asks me how we were. He offers me some encouragement. And then at the time, we, we, we were completely broke as a church. He offered some, some money on behalf of their church to our church and just said, and it was life-saving. It was life-giving. I and mean, it was like, this guy could have done a hundred other things. It's the Monday after Easter. If he'd gone missing for two months, nobody would have asked any questions. But he found me in the cave. Right? And so in so doing, he was he was life-giving. It was, it was like, it was like Ruth to Naomi saying, Yeah, I know you kind of want to just go off and, you know, sulk or be sad or whatever. I'm not gonna let you do that. I'm here to strengthen your hand in the Lord. Or have other friends. I had a guy for two solid years, every Tuesday, would text me. I'm praying for you today. Tell me what you need. So I would text him, and sometimes I was kind of like, eh, you know, I was busy. Or I didn't want to be vulnerable, so I would text back some kind of vague blanket kind of thing. You know, how we do sometimes. Oh, how can I pray for you? Oh, you know, I can pray for the family. Pray for the, you know. But nothing tangible. Nothing, nothing that... Specific, is specific and not, and certainly not cave level. You know, it's more parade level, not cave level. But he wouldn't be satisfied with that, and he kept pounding until he got something out of me. It was like I, I was his emotional pinata, and he was going to beat me until some candy shook out. You know, but that's a version two years, by the way, finding you in the cave. Because he knew, he knew what, what this guy's going through in, the, in his life at this point in time. He needs some encouragement. I'm going to jump in there. I'm going to be a Jonathan, right? 
Now, most of us right now are probably going, yeah, do I have any cave friends? But the part we need to be asking ourselves is, are we a cave friend to somebody else? Are we even capable of that? Do we have anybody with whom we are close enough that we would know if they were really in trouble? That if things were getting really messy for them, we would know. Because in this case, Naomi doesn't have a choice. She's just laid out there. Ruth knows exactly what's going on. They all suffered loss together. And Ruth probably already knew, here's what this sentence is going to look like. Naomi and I are both going to die in a foreign country, or what was for Ruth foreign. I'm, we're going to go back to Naomi's place, and we're going to basically starve to death or, or risk you know, violation or a whole bunch of terrible things that happen to widows in that society. Those friendships to say, okay, we may both die, but we're going to die together. Oh, those are some of the best things God gives us. That's the good stuff right there. And when we experience it, we are experiencing the very hands and feet of the Lord himself. Who says, I will not leave you or forsake you. Those friendships are God's gift to us, and they typically only happen with faithfulness over time. They typically don't happen when a person, you only see somebody every, you know, even, even people that you've known for years and years, and you consider your close friends, and maybe they moved away at some point. There was a time and a place where you guys bonded, usually at some length, before that happens. And so at the very grassroots level, yes, sometimes God provides them to us miraculously, but sometimes... It's a matter of just simply planting your feet somewhere and just making a conscious decision. I'm investing myself in these people, in this person, in this place, in this relationship, and sticking with it. That's the twinkle you see in the eye of the couple dancing after 55 years of marriage at their party. That twinkle comes from one place. It's a different twinkle than the newlyweds. Two different twinkles. <laughs> you know. But even from a relationship standpoint, we have the ability, if we choose, to, to at a very tangible, powerful level, be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in the lives of people. And to make sure that at least in our midst, there was no lonely among them. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Four Loves, friendship is unnecessary. Like philosophy, like art, it has no survival value. Rather, it is one of those things which give value to survival. So God's word, he provides his presence by his word speaking to us, yes. His, his answer to our prayers comfort, comforting us, yes. God in Christ staying with us, just the promises that he makes us, yes. And then he also provides those human versions of that, the, the expressions, the, the gospel lived out among us. And that's what Ruth provides for Naomi, a human expression of the steadfastness of God who will not leave and will not forsake. And so Ruth decides that no matter what happens, she's going to, to stand by Naomi's side we have no money, we have no food, we have no home. Let's go. We're going together at least. 
And so begins a journey of a mother and daughter-in-law that will form the context for the book of Ruth. And in addition to pledging to stay with Naomi, Ruth, more importantly, pledges to worship Naomi's God. She converts from Kamosh to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in so doing, and when they go back to Bethlehem, you do get the juxtaposition of two different systems. In Moab, they had no system of justice for widows and orphans. They do in Israel because God made sure of it. And so God's provision and the way that he provides through his law on the one hand and on the other, uh, his spirit working in the life of a particular man named Boaz. Ruth's steadfast presence in Naomi's life is overshadowed only by the presence of God. Throughout the story of Ruth, we learn from her what it means to be the presence of Christ in the lives of those who experience loss. Just like the Good Samaritan is the role model of God's heart for the hurting, Ruth, the good Moabite, cleaves to her mother-in-law, demonstrating in living color that God has uh, unsurpassed love for us, the love that doesn't leave or forsake. It is steadfast. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. This steadfast love is what we see in Ruth. And then they will go and they will experience the mighty provision of the Lord who insists that his people look out for the Ruths and the Naomi's of the world. Exodus 22, 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Deuteronomy 24 and elsewhere, God commands that his people leave spare crops behind for widows and others to gather. There was a system in place where if you're going through and you're harvesting and something drops in the ground, you don't pick it up. You leave it there so that people who are in need can come by and gather it after the fact. We'll see that at work in the story of Ruth. The kinsman redeemer system, which runs throughout the book of Ruth, where a male relative who was closest in kinship uh, had the privilege or the responsibility to act on behalf of a of a relative who was in trouble or in danger or in need of, of vindication. And in some cases, step in and offer uh, to provide for and also to help father children of, in, in the name of the person who had passed on. Okay, that system, the kinsman redeemer system, it's brought up seven times in the Bible, all in the book of Ruth. So whether it's through providing for Ruth, uh, or providing Ruth for Naomi or Boaz for Ruth, God continues to provide. If you picture God thundering, you know, in the 10 plagues, for instance, this is different. This is like him taking his hand and putting it on the face of somebody. It's a gentle guidance. It's a gentle provision, but it's a provision all the same. And he provides for us as well. Again, one of the greatest things about this book is you take, say, Jonah, and you got great fish swallowing people and barfing them up on land, and you got burning bushes and the seas parting and ten plagues and all, the, all these miracles. Again, Ruth, there, there are no dreams, there's no voices, there's no revelations, there are no miracles, no explicit overt interventions of God even. There are no dramatic answers to prayer. There's just a group of people trying to live and survive and how God helps them in the mundane things of life to make it. And he offers grace in the midst of nothingness. Water in the dry land, if you will. They make decisions about where to, leave, where to live and what to eat, just like we do. But when you read it, you still see the hand of God working. That's how Naomi sees it. Just like in the beginning, she wrongfully assumes God has raised his fist to her. At the end, she stands back and looks at all that God has done and how he's provided. And she knows the credit only goes one place. And she gives glory to God. 
who is, she was empty and now she's full. She was bitter and now she's not. So for us, the takeaway today perhaps is that in Christ, we are not alone, but he is with us always, himself and through his people to the very end of the age. He will not leave us. He will not forsake us. And so we ask that God empower us to be the kind of people who live that out in the lives of others. The story continues next week with Ruth and Naomi. They make their journey back to Bethlehem, try to make a life for themselves there. And even though Ruth, you know, pledges to stay with Naomi, they still have a bread problem that they have to solve. But the Lord is going to provide yet again. He's going to provide a redeemer for Ruth, and he will redeem Ruth through his servant Boaz. And so I'll give you a big spoiler alert. God comes through. You know, you could put that as the, put the Bible in a line. There it is. God comes through. Always. Always. Right now, we're going to remember Jesus, the one who said he would never leave us or forsake us, and that he would be with us always to the end of the age. You should have received the elements when you came in. If you did not uh, and would like them, just put your hand in the air. We'll bring them to you. Uh, but I'd ask for a couple of points of reflection. First, Jesus himself, who is with us and who draws us together as a body. And so we remember by taking the bread and the cup, his body and blood, that was sacrificed for us so that our separation from God could be bridged. Then... Let's think about the relationships that God has blessed us with. Give him thanks for the, for the friends that he's blessed us with. And then ask for him to point us in the direction of somebody for whom we can become a cave friend. Somebody that needs to know that God has not left them. With that in mind, let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for how you've provided for us in Christ. We've, you've provided a way not just to have our sins forgiven, but a a way to palpably know uh, that you're with us and that is to be part of the body of Christ to be part of a community of people who are willing to to stand in the cave to knock on every cave door around until they find the one who is by themselves oh father help us to be good friends to others and Father, for the gift of friendship that we enjoy and the way that you blessed us with people who will stand by our side, Father, we give you thanks. We don't take it lightly, Lord, in a world that is filled with loneliness and despair. Father, you have sent fellowship and, and unity uh, and friendship and light into our lives and to even the darkest caves. So, Father, we thank you for that now. But most of all, we thank you for Jesus, our friend, in whose name we pray. Amen.